You're listening to the Business with Universal Love Show, real experiences of the spiritual realm united with the world of business. Hosted by Michael Seif. Whether you are in the business of providing products and services for customers, in the business of serving the people, or in the business of protecting people, this podcast show is for you. We explore how executives bring spirituality to their people and uncover both the tangible and the intangible benefits of creating a soul-filled workplace where people love coming to work. Now on to the show. Hey, listeners. I've often wondered, is there love in the courtroom? Is there any chance that care or compassion shows up when a person is on trial for a crime? What about fairness and equal treatment for any person? In this episode, we have a deputy district attorney, Rachel Powell, from Colorado Springs, who has been in the public court system for many years. We'll find out what keeps her motivated to continue to be in the business of public service. So, hey, fellow listeners out there, welcome to the next episode of Business with Universal Love. Today, I've got Rachel Powell joining us. She is assistant DA in the city of Colorado Springs, Colorado, and she's been in that position for a while now. And she has a unique position of being able to prosecute and defend the public and look at mankind in a spiritual lens while she's doing her function as an attorney. So, Rachel, glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Yes, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah, great. Well, Rachel, not many people know how one becomes a deputy district attorney. So how did you come into becoming a DA? Well, I got out here to Colorado, went to University of Denver for law school. And during my time at law school, I did a couple of mock trial type of things but I was really not focused on criminal law. I was more interested in immigration law or trust and estates, tax law, that kind of thing. I ended up graduating in 2012 and it wasn't a great time in the economy to graduate from law school. I was looking for a job for a couple of months while I had a different job and I had a friend who moved down here right after law school, and he was working at the DA's office that I work at, and we were kind of just discussing what we were doing with our law degree so far, and he talked about just really enjoying the work that he was doing. He thought it was important work. He thought that I would fit in because I like talking to people. I like being in front of people. There's a lot of law jobs where you are behind a desk and you're just reviewing documents and you never see anyone. And that wasn't the type of law job that I was looking for. And so he called and said, they're hiring. And I put my name in and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. Hey, that's great. So you had a personal connection there. And what I find interesting is you had kind of a vision for what you thought you needed to do from maybe a logical or analytical approach with tax law or other things like estate and trust law. So when the idea of criminal law came along, how did that feel to you? I think it felt really good. I had spent the majority of my life doing my best to plan every step 
where I was going to go to college and law school and that I was going to go to law school. I knew that since I was in eighth grade. Wow. So yeah, so it felt really nice to just be led there and for it to not be what I had planned because I think it just made me know more that it was the right thing to do, especially at that time. I mean, I hope to continue this work. I don't know how long I will, but it's been seven years now and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Hey, that's great. That's some longevity there. What's typical for lawyers supporting a DA office for longevity? Definitely not like that. You kind of have two ends of the spectrum. You're either looking at somewhere between, man, a year and three years, all the way up to what they refer to as career prosecutors. And those people start there and and retire from that office. You kind of have two ends of the spectrum, but it is looked at quite a bit as a good jumping off point for any other type of law career that you want. So you get so much experience in the courtroom, doing hearings, doing jury trials, that a lot of people start there and then move to other types of legal work. And so you don't see a lot of longevity unless somebody has made a decision to be a career prosecutor. Yeah, wow. So your seven years has been a long time in some people's eyes, because as you said, they tend to go on and do other law practice work. So staying there has been for a reason for you. What would you say is your biggest reason for sticking around that long? I think I went into law school thinking that being a lawyer was a good career decision and it allowed for a lot of growth financially and professionally. And that was kind of my focus. Once I was led to be a DA I think I realized that what I wanted for my career was a lot more than just professional advancement or financial security. I wanted to feel like I was making a difference and that I was contributing to a purpose bigger than myself. And I found that at the DA's office. And a lot of people don't like lawyers and they don't like them for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is they are expensive and they seem to just kind of bicker back and forth and fight about things. And this job gives me the ability to operate in the legal field outside of those stereotypes. Yeah, that is a stereotype that's out there. And you've presented a picture where you're focused on a purpose, that higher purpose you talked about. And How true is it to you that you feel like you're serving the people by aligning to that higher purpose? I think that the only way to go about the day-to-day actions that I'm taking in my job is to not forget the reason that you're doing what you're doing. And so it can, you can get wrapped up in paperwork, get wrapped up in discussions with a defense attorney that are either going well or not well. But at the end of the day, the reason that I do this job is to protect the community and to help and assist victims in getting whatever they feel is their sense of justice in a case that they have been victimized in. And so in my office, we are encouraged to spend that extra time with the victims, getting to know them, 
and making sure that they're in as involved as we can have them be. And that just contributes to making sure that you're doing everything, like I said, for the right reasons. Yeah, that's wonderful. You mentioned how you're encouraged to get to know the victims. And from a perspective of your own where you want to help other people, how comforting or how reassuring is it to have that support from higher up? It's extremely reassuring. I think that one of the, I guess, downsides or kind of pulls that you can feel in a DA's office is there's definitely politics involved. The top person, the DA, is an elected official. And so they are expected to run the office in a way that the voters would appreciate. So if there is a jurisdiction that thinks that prosecution of people who have guns illegally is really important or fighting the drug trafficking, whatever the community wants to focus on is what that DA is elected to do. And that may or may not align with how you feel, but it kind of takes the politics out of it when you're talking about a victim. There's really nothing political about somebody who's been victimized in a crime. It doesn't really matter what the type of crime is. This person's been victimized. They're seeing the worst days of their lives. Most of the time, and probably all of the time, through no fault of their own. And so being able to spend time getting to know them, spend time understanding whether I can effectuate it or not, what they want to see happen, even just listening to them at times, having their emotions be seen and heard and felt is enough to help that healing process for them and help them get through something that is traumatizing and will be a life event for them and not one that's in the, this was a great life event category, (laughs) one that they would rather have not had happen, but they're going to have to go through it. I want them to feel like it was as painless as possible. Yeah, that's remarkable for you to have that kind of compassionate approach when it seems either through TV or other outlets that that's not what an attorney does and that's not definitely not what the DA's office would approach normally. So, my congratulations for taking that compassionate approach and you've been doing it now for a while. What are some examples or experiences you've had that kind of highlight how that works for you? I think I got to, I started doing felony crimes about two years into my time at the DA's office. And typically when you move into felony crimes, you are kind of given the run of the mill. It could be anything. It could be menacing. It could be a financial crime. It could be an assault. It could be just any number of felonies. And so some of those are what we refer to as victims' rights crimes, and some of them are not. So some of them, like when you have a business that's victimized or you have an ID theft, an identity theft, but you don't know necessarily who the victim is, those ones you're spending less time making the victim contact. But you have the other cases like the assaults and the menacings and things like that where the victim contact and the victim communication is not only important to our office, but is required by law, by the Victims' Rights Act, which is a federal law. And I had an assault case where 
there were some allegations of a sexual assault, but the victim did not want to report or go forward on that part of it. And I don't think that law enforcement felt like they had enough otherwise to go forward. So it just came across my desk as a a regular run-of-the-mill assault. I ended up spending about two hours with this woman in my office, and all she wanted was for someone to kind of talk through with her what had happened and for someone to tell her, I believe you. I may not be able to prove it in a court of law. I may not be able to get a jury to believe it. I may not be able to provide evidence that I need to provide, but sitting here talking to you person to person, I believe the things that you're saying and I believe that they happened and I believe they happened to you. And I think that moment was just powerful to me because again, it was just an assault case that came across my desk could have just been quick phone call. Hey, this is what's going on with the case. Here's what's happening but she needed more. And if you take the time, and if that's one of the hard parts is you don't necessarily have the time all the time, but this gave me the opportunity to kind of help her feel like she was credible and feel like she was somebody who doesn't make things up. Those things happen to her. And I think it was just a spot where she could figure out how to start processing the incident or the event and I think I just look for those opportunities because sometimes victims don't want to cooperate. Sometimes they don't want to be part of the process at all. And sometimes they do, but they don't like the way you're doing the prosecution. And so you can't, I guess, hug everybody and you can't comfort everybody and you can't necessarily make a difference with every victim, but there are enough that you can that makes it worthwhile, I think. Oh, absolutely. You talk about this one incident, but you've probably had many others where you've been able to reach out and comfort and obviously provide some opportunity for healing. How often would you say that happens? Definitely more often than you would think. I spent some time in economic crimes, and a lot of the victims in those types of cases are elderly because someone has taken their identity or money from them, their retirement, their, they've forged a will or any number of things. And it feels like those victims especially really just want someone to talk to and they want someone to understand what the money represented to them because it really isn't about the number to them. It's that it represented their financial security, not having to rely on family and being able to retire and remain retired the way that they wanted to. And so spending time in that unit for about two years felt like those contacts with victims became more and more important. And definitely they were more receptive to wanting that extra bit of support and compassion because they really felt like the theft had, or whatever the crime was, had just kind of turned their life on its head. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's so disabling and disheartening to have that kind of effect, especially financially. So to be able to reach out to them and one, like you said, connect with them, but to support them from your role and function has a tremendous impact. 
how would you say you promote fairness when these victims have these challenges, right? Where they clearly feel like they're a victim or they clearly feel like they've been wronged. But at the same point, you're upholding the law and you're trying to see innocence and the prosecuted as well if the evidence isn't there. So how do you promote fairness? The biggest way that I feel like I promote fairness is taking my personal opinions and me as a person out of it. Because as you can imagine, these incidences and the prosecution process is extremely emotionally charged on both ends. It's emotionally charged for the victim as they feel wronged, and it's emotionally charged for the defendant as they know that whatever happens, it will affect the rest of their lives, whether it's a conviction, some serving time in prison, etc. I think taking myself out of it and looking at the facts as they are and as I can prove them, because I think over the last seven years, I have developed quite the gut about when I read a case. I can tell whether or not the person did the crime or not. Unfortunately, that doesn't really and can't really affect the way I look at a case. I have to look at a case with what can I prove? Because whether or not I think a person committed the crime is mostly irrelevant, almost completely irrelevant. And so I have to go to the victim and I really have to discuss with them. Well, I know you say X, Y, and Z happen, but what I can only prove Z. And then I have to think about what the case looks like in front of a jury. And then I have to think about what this case will do to the defendant and what it will do to their life, especially with the economic crimes. Part of making the victim whole is often what we refer to as restitution or paying back the amount that was taken. And so I have to weigh things like Do I want them to go to prison and spend, let's say, five years there, but they don't get the opportunity to really pay back the victim during those five years because they're incarcerated? Or do you put them on probation for those five years so that they can continue to work and a portion of their paycheck or whatever goes to the victim to help make them whole again? So that's something that I think, especially with economic crimes, you're always balancing. But I really do think What's best about the DA's office is that if you're a criminal defense attorney, you are ethically required to zealously represent your client, whether you believe them to be guilty, whether you think they're a good person or a bad person, whether you think what they did is the most terrible thing you've ever heard or not. You have to zealously represent them. A DA doesn't have clients. All my job is to promote justice and to protect the community. And so I'm not counting convictions. I'm not trying to get a certain number of convictions. That's not what it's about. It's about promoting that justice and fairness that you are referencing. And so because I have that kind of, it can be a semi-vague notion rather than a client, I'm able to kind of look at both sides and see what I believe will be fair based on what I can prove and based on what I think is best for making the victim whole. Yeah, that's great. That approach makes a lot of sense. And the perspective you gave of the defense attorney versus the prosecution side to uphold justice is unique perspective. When you try to bring that approach into the courtroom, how do the judges respond to that kind of approach you take? 
I think they they respond sometimes well and sometimes not. I find judges to overall be extremely compassionate and they are uniquely situated kind of like a prosecutor in that they don't have a client. They are just kind of weighing both sides. And so they get to look at what I present and what the defense presents and they just have to go with their highest sense of right. And I think it took me a little bit of time to not take personally when a judge didn't think that what I was arguing or presenting was the highest sense of right and that they thought what the defense was presenting or arguing was the highest sense of right. took me a long time to take the person out of that and just realize that what was happening is that the judge was deciding that justice looked different than what I thought justice looked like. And so once I kind of figured that out, it took all the pressure out of, I guess I would use the word winning or being successful in your argument because I just had to learn that as I walked out of the courtroom, if I wasn't successful in my argument, it just meant that this judge saw justice in a different way and they were just doing their highest sense of right. And then it wasn't personal to me. And I think what judges do that is a little bit harder to do as a prosecutor is they are always expecting good. They're always expecting this person to be rehabilitated. They're always expecting the person to pay the restitution, to complete all the requirements of their sentence and for them never to see them again for this to be their only criminal offense that they ever commit. And I think that's something I struggle with the most. I try to expect that amount of good as well. But when I see repeat offenders or I see people not be rehabilitated, that's one of the biggest struggles um, with seeing people come back after they promised, you'll never see me again. This was just a mistake, et cetera, those types of things. But I do think judges are really good at expecting that good and sentencing with that in mind. So kind of sentencing without punishing people for something they haven't done yet, if that makes sense. No, that sure does. And of course, like you said, you're not counting winnings. You're trying to prosecute or approach the case with your sense of how that should go. And then you have the judge kind of overseeing everything with their perspective of what justice looks like. What I find really interesting, though, is that Like you said, it it can be really challenging when you have repeat offenders coming back and they're doing the same thing all over again. But I have to give you credit. You move on and keep doing your job and trying to uphold that higher sense of right, which is, is quite notable. And when I think about the rest of the country and whether it's a federal or state systems or county or city, each of these images we seem to be seeing in the media are not what you're describing. So how valuable do you think it is to be in the setting where you are in comparison to other attorney positions nationwide? I think that it goes back to what I said earlier about not having a client and not really having a set. I don't have a quota of things I have to do, people I have to charge, people I have to convict, that kind of a thing. I think that that's unique to the position of a prosecutor, but I do also think it's unique to my office in particular. I've heard from DAs from other states as well as from within Colorado that my office that I work for has a high level of discretion. 
And what discretion means is nobody's looking over my shoulder as I'm deciding what to do with a case. They're trusting that I have been trained to evaluate a case and look for what the highest sense of right or what justice is. And they're not saying, well, because there's a gun involved, you have to do this. Or because there's this thing involved, you have to do that. They're just saying, do what you think is right with these cases. And that is, it's extremely helpful because it takes away just the idea that there is a quota or the idea that other people's political leanings or their just their feelings about guns or drugs or whatever the case may be, domestic violence, which can be sexual assault and whether to believe a victim or not, like all of those political topics just don't come into play. Because the question to me is, what do I have in front of me? What can I prove? Because sometimes I have stuff in front of me that maybe isn't admissible in court. I have a statement that I just can't get in, or I have a document that I just can't show to the jury for some statutory reason, the rules of evidence keep it out. I have to consider that and then from there decide what the highest sense of justice is and just really reaching for that. I was talking to a coworker of mine and what I like too is I know it's always been this way, but it is increasingly this way with how electronic we are. So everything, police reports, photos, everything comes to us electronically. Everything's done on the computer. It's rare that you have a piece of paper in front of you. And with that, the only thing that I'm getting when I am evaluating a case for first filing charges and then prosecution, I get somebody's name, I get their date of birth, And I get their social security number, which is typically redacted. That's not something I'm looking at. But I don't get their age. I don't get where they live in town. I don't get their race. I don't get any of those details. And what's just comforting about that is that, I mean, those never mattered to me to begin with. But even if there was some sort of subconscious thing, that's not even something I'm looking at. I literally am looking at, here's your name, here's your date of birth. I guess I could compute the age from the date of birth. And then here are the facts that the police officer is providing me. And then from there, I'm able to either corroborate those facts with the photos that I have, the video that I have, other police reports, or not. And so I really just like that part of my job is that those facts and the things that are really in the media right now, and it seems like what people are focusing on is only prosecuting people of a certain race, only prosecuting people of a certain socioeconomic class. I mean, just the way that I get cases, the way that they come across my desk doesn't even include that information. Yeah, that's wonderful, Rachel. The idea that mankind is created spiritual and they're each unique, but that they don't have to be bend into a particular demographic, like you talked about, means that when you're able to come into the courtroom and proceed with the case, you're able to be impartial, bring that fairness. And it seems like it's much more likely that justice will be upheld and that there isn't a motive or there isn't an agenda 
and that truth will reign in that kind of environment. How true does that seem? It seems true in my experience. I think that the example I gave earlier about how my sense of justice or my highest sense of right maybe wasn't adopted or shared by a judge that I'm in front of, that happens with juries as well, is that my idea of what the truth is and my idea of what justice is doesn't necessarily get reflected in a jury verdict. And for me, it took a little bit of time, but once I realized that that was why the justice system is set up the way that it is, is there's all types of personalities, all types of perspectives, and that's why people are tried by a jury of their peers, because they're able to parse out what they believe that truth to be without any outcome. They don't care the outcome of the case. They're impartial. They just are sitting as a juror in a random case because they got the juror summons in the mail. And I think that just lends itself to the truth always winning or the truth always being the outcome, whether it's the truth that I believe occurred on the date of the crime or not. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been fascinating, Rachel, to hear your perspective and not many people often get that when they think about business. And we you talked about the business of protecting the law and protecting the courtroom environment and upholding that higher sense of what the law is. So what would you say or any other things you'd want to add about bringing spiritual qualities or your views to the work you do? I think the biggest qualities that I feel like come out within this particular type of work is the compassion for victims and at times even the compassion for the defendants. The just feeling of doing this work for a bigger purpose and a higher purpose that isn't about myself. It isn't about the money in prosecution. It isn't about the number of convictions. It isn't about the number of cases even. It's just about that higher purpose of protection and that higher purpose of justice and truth. And the last thing I would say is that I'm a hard worker and I really like to evaluate my effort. Am I putting in the right effort? Is it enough effort? And that was really difficult in the beginning when that effort that I was putting in wasn't garnering the results that I wanted, which was a guilty verdict if I went to trial or a certain plea bargain being accepted. And so once I realized that I needed to kind of measure my effort within the process itself and not necessarily in the outcome, that's when I think it just got to be so impersonal and so much about the work that I do rather than me as a person. Think it's hard because every other part of life, your effort is kind of measured by the outcome or by the success that you have. If you're running a race, did you get first? If you're trying to get a promotion, the outcome is whether or not you got the promotion instead of the effort you put in to even be considered for the promotion. And so it took me quite a bit of mindset shifting to realize that 
if I measure my effort throughout the process and know that I did the very best I could prosecuting the case and do the very best I can for the victim and for the sense of justice that I'm pursuing, and that's all that really matters. And once I made that transition, I think it became just not about me at all. I mean it in a great way. I feel like just a kind of a cog or just a part in the whole process. And I like that feeling. Then it just feels like it's not about my personal qualities or my personal opinions. It's just about that sense of justice. Yeah, I think that's very well said to be able to look past the results and actually to see that you're, as you said, a cog in the wheel that's making the system work well and work like it should. And you rest in that you did your best and that you offered what you could without that personal attachment. So very interesting and very fascinating what you shared. Any final words? Oh, I don't think so. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, Rachel, thank you very much for being on the show today. It's been a real pleasure and wish you the best in your career and continue doing what you are doing. The The world needs the work that you do. It is it is vitally needed. So I laud your, your work. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the show and feel uplifted knowing that people are still trying to uphold fairness, which is a quality of unconditional love. As I've said before, agape love is expressed in many ways, even when one is on trial. Isn't that great?